This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England, and you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. Dedicated to the people that love to know all the spooky and gruesome details about serial killers, haunted houses, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. Gather around, boys and girls, because today we have another story time! Story time! We have six terrifying tales to share with you from the infamously popular No Sleep subreddit. I gotta tell you, it's getting harder and harder to find ones that really give your girl goosebumps, but these... They are creepy as hell. So sit back, pop some corn, and enjoy. Welcome back to the show, and for those new to the podcast, I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro, we're having story time! Yay! So grab those juice boxes, get all comfy like on that Playmat City rug, because here we go. Our first story comes from Reddit user Manon Lyset, and it's called A Package Marked Return to Sender. My neighbor is one of those annoying wannabe YouTube personalities. Over the years, I've seen him cough out cinnamon, lay flat on the hood of his car as it slowly creeps down the driveway, and douse himself in lukewarm water, all while screaming, Epic win! Epic failure! Fuck! Epic maintenance of the status quo, for all I fucking know. It can get tiring to watch him go about his shenanigans in the pursuit of viral fame, so when he knocked on my door the other day, told me he was going away for a few weeks, and asked that I get his mail, honestly, it was a relief. I can't explain the peace of mind I had knowing I didn't have to brace myself for any of his stupidity for a while. I was always afraid his stunts would wind up bleeding over into my life. Things were pretty normal for the first couple of days. He received a few bills, a bit of spam, and what I could only assume was a birthday card. Then one evening, I got home to find a cardboard box waiting on his front porch. In big red letters was written, Return to Sender. I'm no small fry, but I admit I had trouble lifting the box on my own. It was really freaking heavy. Lugging it across the road to my house was even harder, and I quickly realized there was no way I was going to drag it up the stairs and through my front door. I decided I'd leave his package in my garage. It wasn't like I kept my car in there. The garage door was a piece of shit that refused to open without a good thug and whack. It was less trouble just leaving the car in the driveway than it was to fight with the garage door every morning and night. In hindsight, I should have set the package down while I struggled to open the tricky door, but you know how it is when you've got a good grip on something. No point in setting it down if you don't have to. It was as I kicked the door for a third time that I lost my grip on the package, and it fell to the ground. I heard a light crack inside. Shit. I hoped I hadn't broke anything important, but I figured I wouldn't tell my neighbor about it and let him assume the break happened on rote hands-free. 
I finally managed to get the garage door unstuck and boy did it screech in protest as it rolled up and over me. I dragged the box the rest of the way, setting it in the corner for whenever my neighbor would come back to claim it, and then I forgot all about it. Until a few days passed, that is. I'm not sure exactly how long it took for the smell to waft in from the crack under garage to house door, but it came in slow progression. It was a sickly sweet odor, similar to a skunk, and for the first few days after I smelled it, I genuinely assumed that's exactly what it was, roadkill that had left its mark on my house. It was only when I realized the scent was growing more intense instead of fading that I went looking for a source. That's when I opened the garage door, and that's when the odor knocked me back, holding my nose. The culprit was hard to identify. The only change in my garage was the box in the corner. I remember thinking it must have been one of those meat-of-the-month subscription boxes. The meat must have gone rancid from being left out of the fridge for so long. How much meat could have been in there for the box to have been so large and heavy? An entire freaking cow? I covered my nose as I approached the box, a pair of scissors in my hands. I probably wouldn't have needed them to open it, as it had become soggy enough at the bottom to poke through with a finger, but I wasn't about to poke my finger into spoiled meat juices. The soggy bottom was the reason I had to open the box in the first place. If I tried to drag it out whole, everything would spill onto the floor. I was going to have to dump the pieces of meat one garbage bag at a time, and take them down to the dumpster. A process I wasn't looking forward to. My scissors tore through the tape along the top of the cardboard box. I thought the smell couldn't get any worse, but as I flipped the flaps open, I discovered a whole new gamut of stink. It was like opening a burning oven, but instead of a heat wave, I was met with waves of piss, sweat, shit, and putrefaction. It was so bad that I staggered back and had to force down the puke begging to guzzle out of me. I don't think I could have handled that scent mingling with the horrors coming out of the box. I'm not ashamed to admit I ran out of the door for a breath of fresh air, but in the short time I'd spent in the garage, the smell had become so ingrained in the fabric of my clothes that it clung to me like a shadow. Nothing I tried could keep the smell out of my nostrils. Not air fresheners, not a face mask, not three showers and a change of gloves. Every second that box lay open in my garage was another second the smell was allowed a foothold into my home. I had to bite the bullet. I returned to the garage, the flaps of the box still open as though inviting me to look. I was prepared. A clothespin pinning my nostrils shut, a garbage bag in one hand, the strongest cleaner I could find in the other, and long rubber gloves to keep my skin from having to touch what was inside. But as it turns out, I needed none of those things. I wouldn't have to touch or clean the contents of that box. I would only have to suffer the nightmares every night. You see, there was meat in that box, but it didn't come from a cow or a pig. No, it was worse than that. It was my neighbor, dead. Still in one piece, but dead. I called the cops and naturally they took me in for interrogation. It's kind of hard not to suspect the man with the corpse in his garage after all. Thankfully, they soon realized I wasn't involved. My DNA may have been all over that box. The smell might have left a mark throughout my house, but there was one piece of irrefutable evidence in my neighbor's own hands that proved my innocence. A vlogging camera. They showed me the footage only once. I'm not sure if they were allowed to, or if they felt so bad for me they figured it couldn't hurt. Either way, I saw it. 
my neighbor was sitting in the box outside of a shipping facility, laughing as he told the world how he was going to mail himself across state lines. He brought pee bottles, food, a pillow, and a few flashlights. His friend, a guy I've seen at his place several times to help with his stunts, closed the lid and presumably dropped him off for shipment. Throughout the next couple of hours, or days, I'm honestly not sure, my neighbor recorded a few short clips about his progress. I think I'm in a truck now. I can feel it moving. Must be in a warehouse. Pretty warm here. Still got plenty of food. That kind of stuff. And then, on the last entry, the box toppled over. He broke his neck, and that was it. The camera recorded until either the memory card got too full or the battery died. There's one thing I didn't tell the police after they showed me the video. One thing I heard in the footage that will haunt me to the day I die. Just after the tumble that broke his neck, I heard the familiar screeching sound of my garage door. Holy shit. So he was... He did actually kill him, but yeah. accidentally. Yeah. No, like he thought he was breaking something fragile, but no. Yeah, I mean, he did. Fucking neighbor's neck. Yep. <laughs> shit. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> Alright, so the rest of the stories we're reading today come from Reddit user M59GAR. And the first one is called, You'll Never Even Know. Surveillance is a growing fact of life these days, but I now believe we've expanded the scope of human sight into dangerous levels. I'm not a master hacker by any means, but I was definitely able to Google a script to break into my neighbor's new smart home system. Believe me when I say that ignorance is bliss and that you can never go back once you know the truth. I'm not some creep. The idea first started as a random thought when I heard my 50-something-year-old neighbor bragging to someone else on his porch about his new smart home system. <laughs> he claimed the security system and all the devices in his house were wired to the same voice command box, and he sounded rather proud of it. He claimed it was perfect security. Of course, after overhearing a claim like that floating in through my open window... We made a single search and found a dozen hits for scripts that would break into the brand he described. I laughed to myself, and then left it at that. But temptation has a funny way of lurking in the back of your mind. Every few days, the thought would randomly pop into my head. I had the power. Why not take a peek? It would be good enough for a laugh, if nothing else. It's not like he would have installed cameras in his bathrooms or anything. Nah. No. Uh, maybe. No, I shouldn't. But then, spring break arrived. And while sitting at my computer, I happened to glance out the window and see the neighbor's daughter coming home from college. The temptation to use the script had already been percolating in me for weeks. The veins in my extremities constricted painfully as I realized I was actually gonna do it. During my brief glimpse down into their yard, I'd seen what looked like a startlingly attractive girl, and I couldn't connect that image to the weird girl next door I'd last seen in high school. It wasn't a creeper thing, I just wanted a better look to understand what I'd seen. I told myself I'd take one quick look and then be done with it. While loading up the script, I promised myself I'd delete it right after. Yeah, that was the right thing to do. No harm done, and if I got caught somehow, I would just claim it was a one-time accident. That sounded reasonable. A black window scrolled text down my screen rapidly for six seconds, and then 
I was in. Nerves thrilling, I watched breathlessly through a security cam feed in the living room as the girl came in, greeted her brother and father, and then headed upstairs. It was definitely the same girl I remembered, and she'd definitely gotten absurdly pretty in the last year somehow. After settling into certainty, I closed the feed, deleted the script, then I spent a paranoid hour clearing my computer of any evidence of what I'd done. For maybe a week, I sat at home terrified that the police would break down my door and tase me at any moment. But that's the funny thing about temptation. When no consequences followed, the urge to look began eating away at me again. I had a few drinks one lonely night and then went for it before I could change my mind. The son was watching television in the living room. I couldn't see what he was watching from the angle of the camera in the living room, but he seemed zoned out. My neighbor himself was sitting in the kitchen working on his laptop. Again, I couldn't see what he was doing from my angle, but he was certainly downing a coffee as he worked. My pulse quickened as a hallway feed caught the daughter going from her room to the bathroom in just a towel to take a shower. Okay, borderline creepish, I told myself, but it's not like I could see in the bathrooms or the bedrooms, right? Just to confirm that I couldn't, I tried the various devices around the house that the neighbor had connected to a system. Most were named with random numbers and letters, but I did find that household devices had many more sensors than we gave them credit for. A microwave in the kitchen had some sort of crude light sensor, and the system sent me its data as an incredibly blurry video feed. A big blob of darkness moved in place in front of a bright rectangle of light, and I realized I was looking at my neighbor on his laptop from a different angle. In fact, many devices in the house had crude light sensors or audio pickups, and I could hear the shower running upstairs on one while listening to the sun's show on another. This was all proceeding as one might expect, and I might have gone down a very dark path if I hadn't stumbled upon the unthinkable. One of the devices with a very long and very random name showed me a blurry feed somewhere unrecognizable. I switched back and forth comparing the patterns of light from the cameras, but this device seemed to be looking out on somewhere altogether different. Was it the basement? It was darker than the others, but not too dark to obscure strange gray blurs moving on black. I kept switching until I found a security camera near a basement window. It was the only one down there, but it showed enough that I could compare blurs. It was less that the objects were moving and more that the fuzzy sensor made the objects appear to move simply because it was so bad, but I pinpointed a poster, a chair, and a mirror before coming to an impasse with the final blur. This one I could only see on the sensor. There was nothing on the video feed. Peering closer and closer, I tried to make sense of the blob of gray and white pixels as it moved around the basement. There, and there, recognizable landmarks among the junk, but no sign of it on the high-res camera. What was I seeing? Was the sensor just defective? What device was it even part of? I managed to narrow it down to a forgotten digital clock that must have been running on batteries, but nothing about this made sense. I looked up a script to sharpen the video data, and I let everything run all night. In the morning, I pulled myself up, got a coffee, and sat down at my computer, and then froze. Repeatedly, I played the confusing horror the script had produced. The blur of gray and shadows had become coherent, but not in any natural way. Instead, it appears that I was looking at an androgynous, gray humanoid form with a pillowcase over her head. Since this was just a graphical best guess, her glitchy movement brought out severe unease and disgust in me as I watched her jerkily walk around the basement. She appeared to be able to navigate despite the pillowcase covering her face, and she even made it up a few steps towards the basement door before her random movements took her back down. What the hell was I seeing?
For two days, I watched that thing stumble around my neighbor's basement before she finally went all the way up the stairs. It was four in the morning and all three of them were asleep. This time, she seemed to move with purpose. She was still not visible on any high-resolution camera, but I tracked her from sensor to sensor by her twitching blur. After so long watching her unfocused form, I was beginning to get a sense of where her legs and arms were by the movement and patterns of the gray. Each limb moved as if on different conflicting joints. When she walked, it was as if her ankles, knees, and thighs each wanted to go opposite directions, and the conflict was only resolved by odd rotations and strange body angles. Ugh. Nope. Nope. I'm good. Can picture that far too well. Thanks for that painting. Gripped by terror, I watched her slowly ratchet her way through the kitchen and toward the second set of stairs. There was no doubt in my mind that she was heading for the bedrooms. My knuckles went white as I gripped the edge of my table. Finally, as she clambered up and out of sight of the sensors, I panicked. She still wasn't visible on the hallway camera, but I knew I had to do something. But what? If I called the house, they would have my phone number, and they would start asking questions as to why I'd called at four in the morning. There was no way I could pretend it was random. The only reason I even had my neighbor's cell phone number was that I'd heard him say it out loud the week before on one of my feeds. What could I do? Desperate to act, or at least to see what was happening, I left my computer and crept to a window in another room. From there I could see into my neighbor's daughter's window, and my entire body ran with prickly terror as I spied a strange gray anti-glow in her room. The sharpening script had not been wrong, it had merely been inadequate. My eyes still interpreted the inexplicable entity as an androgynous humanoid with a pillowcase over its head, but it moved through the space of the girl's room like a depressed carving etched into reality itself. I could feel why it didn't show up on cameras. It was something otherworldly, something not entirely there, or something visible only as an artifact of organic human perception. This was a creature outside the realm of human knowing and observation, and I guessed that it was making its move now only because it believed itself to be unseen. It jerked and twitched forward to lean over the neighbor's daughter as she slept. Quickly and quietly, I slid open my window, removed the screen, and threw a quarter at the glass panes opposite. I ducked down immediately after and clutched the floor in abject terror. The rap noise had been excruciatingly loud. Had the entity snapped its pillowcase-covered head towards the sound? Had it seen me? I had no way of knowing. Or did I? Crawling back to my room, I checked the feeds. Apparently, completely unperturbed by my noise, the entity had begun ratcheting her way back down the stairs. It was not fleeing to the basement. I watched as it approached the small table by the front door and began going through the mail stacked there. It carefully picked out one envelope and crumpled it into oblivion in a blurry gray hand. Then it moved to the kitchen, where it touched the keyboard on my neighbor's laptop repeatedly for nearly a minute. What was it doing? It returned to the basement to move in lurking circles and I sat and stared at it, half awake, until a shout from both my computer and my open window jolted me to full awareness. It had been my neighbor in his kitchen. He'd yelled loud enough for me to hear it for real, stalking back and forth while talking on the phone. He was insisting he hadn't sent any compromising emails. He'd been fired from his job. In the front hall, his son was busy looking through the pile of mail. He asked his sister and father repeatedly if any college acceptance letters had come in, but his father was too busy arguing on the phone and his sister hadn't seen any. But I had. What type of entity were we dealing with here? It hadn't physically harmed anyone, but it was still lurking in their home every hour of every day, and it had made invisible moves against them by sabotaging my neighbor's job and his son's college career. At long last, my neighbor seemed to convince the other end that his account had been hacked. 
but he was somber and concerned about how it would reflect on him at work. The son continued on with his day, oblivious to the fact that his acceptance letter had come in and been destroyed. It was then that I began to think about the timeline of what had happened. I'd resisted the urge to spy on my neighbor's family for weeks. Indeed, beyond that, he'd lived there for years. If the entity had been in his basement the entire time, then perhaps they were not physically at risk. There'd been plenty of opportunities to hurt them directly. No, this was something else. This was a specter of misfortune, a curse, an information parasite. But my neighbor had not been particularly unlucky as far as I knew, not until he'd gotten the surveillance system. A bunch of little complaints I'd heard him make suddenly began to add up. Things had been inexplicably going wrong for everyone in his family recently. Alarm clocks had been failing to go off at the proper time, emails and texts had been a bit weird, and each of the three members of the household had a general growing frustration with life. It was undermining them. It was literally lurking in the basement, lurking out of sight, and sabotaging them, and they had no idea. But where had the entity come from? Almost all of the devices and cameras had been there before. The only difference was that they had been integrated. Did observation have an effect on the physical universe? I was no quantum physics expert, but I knew that observation was a crucial part of existence. Did overlapping, connected layers of observation somehow enable this entity to slide into our world? When you put all the pieces together, did the whole add up to more than the sum of the parts? I began thinking of a plan of action that involved sneaking over there and turning off all of their devices in hopes of banishing the entity in their basement, but as I did so, I looked down and to the left at my cell phone. It sat quietly glowing on the table, for I had moved my hand above it and activated its motion sensor. Then I looked up and noticed the webcam above my monitor that I always kept pointed at myself. And I looked to my right at my television, itself containing a sensor, and the gaming console beside it that also had sensors to detect my motion. Microphones. Cameras. Everywhere. I'd applied for so many internships last summer and gotten none. I'd missed dates and lost budding relationships because of texting troubles. Everything had felt hard and difficult lately, thus why I was sitting alone on my computer most nights. I sat without breathing for nearly 20 seconds. There would be no plan. There would be no action taken. My neighbors would have to fend for themselves. I let out my breath, put my hands back on my mouse and keyboard, and loaded up a computer game. It would look like I'd given up to anyone watching. Next up is a peculiar kind of madness. I'd always known that my great-grandma was an orphan, but in late October of last year, she decided to tell me the truth about what happened to her family. We were visiting her for her birthday. It was a tradition in our household. A road trip we knew in the back of our minds we'd only take a few more times. She was turning 98, so that was just the cold hard truth of the matter. In my childhood, the journey to central Iowa had been a fun and lighthearted affair, but now my brother and parents could only maintain strained politeness as we met up and hit the road together. Each of us knew that this trip might be our last. For several hours, we drove through the vast open farm fields that stretched from horizon to horizon. My great-grandma's house was down a narrow dirt road off a wide dirt road off a gravel tractor line. 
As a city boy, it was more or less the most remote possible dwelling I could imagine. She was born there, had lived her entire life there, and would soon... Well, as we parked in an open muddy rectangle and stepped out to stretch our legs, the constancy of the place surrounded me. Every single year of my life, this house and its land had been exactly the same. The sky was open blue, the earth was a sea of waving gold, and the wind was a smooth river of cool warmth. There was never anything to mar those three pillars of sensory experience except the house, the barn, a defunct old tractor, and the bell. The bell was a simple thing raised high on an old metal crook. It sat out in the fields about a quarter mile from the house, serving as a measure of the wind. If a storm was coming, the bell was supposed to ring, a necessary precaution in tornado country. The only problem was, the bell and its crook had rusted over long ago. Every time I got out of the family van from age 5 to age 26, I glanced that direction and felt a sense of unease as my gaze fell upon that decayed artifact. This time, at age 27, I looked over and saw that the bell had been scraped and polished clean of rust. It glinted in the sunlight, practically daring me to look at it. I followed my family inside while struggling with a feeling of dread that I couldn't articulate. Who had cleaned the bell? And why? I tried to stop thinking about it as we gathered in the kitchen and said our hellos. My great-grandma was making tea and shooed off our attempts to help. She was a frail woman for whom movement was difficult, but she'd never let that stop her. The Wi-Fi password is on a note in the living room, she told us with an unquestionable authority. Go stare at your phones and the tea will be ready in a moment. My brother and I did as we were told, but my parents turned on the television instead of looking at their phones. For a few minutes, we stayed in our separate worlds, only returning to the present when my great-grandma brought in the tea, and we had a nice time. That night, when everyone else was long asleep, I happened to open my eyes and see a glow under the door of the guest room I shared with my brother. My parents were in a different room and would not see the same light, so it was up to me to investigate. Quietly, so as not to wake him, I crept out and down, finding my great-grandma still awake. She sat in her big jade leather chair, her gaze on the television. She asked me without looking my way, You don't fall for this stuff, do you? What, like ads? She pointed her thin little arm at the nearby couch. Sit. I sat. I'm going to tell you a family secret, she said softly, finally looking my direction. It's for you, and possibly for your brother, but not your parents. Do you understand? I didn't. Not fully, but I nodded. You know I was an orphan for a time. Born in this house, lived with my family, but then raised by an uncle after it happened. She didn't wait for my nod. I was ten years old that night. It was my birthday. My mother had gotten me a small cake about the size of your fist. I looked forward to that cake every year since we didn't exactly have sweets bounding about back then. It was 11 cents, so rather expensive. But my mother got one for every one of us on our birthdays, no matter what we had to scrimp or save. All year long, I saw Mary get her cake in January, Arthur get his cake in March, Eleanor in June, Clarence in July, then Ruth a week after Clarence. Then it was months and months until me. The odd one out, on October 29th. I was so excited for that cake. As the days rolled closer, as the morning dawned, as the hours inched by, I hopped around the house like a bunny rabbit, but I wasn't allowed to eat it until after supper. I stared at the clock, so I know. Yes, that one on the mantel there, 
the brass and chrome one. Same one. But I stared at the clock, so I know. Night fell at 6.41. That was the moment bright orange stopped glinting off that clock and my mother rose to light a lamp. I looked up at her. Now? She smiled and shook her head. My brothers and sisters complained in a chorus in support of me, but she just shook her head at them. Too soon, and she'll ruin her supper. Father came in from the fields not long after that. Dirty and tired as all get out. He ate in silence, while we chattered endlessly about what type of cake it would be. Under the frosting, who knew? It might be raspberry, vanilla, or even chocolate. We grew silent as Father neared the cleaning of his plate, an event which would mark the end of supper. Four pieces of meat and bread remained. Then three. Then two. Any moment now. He stopped at the last piece, holding it unmoving above the remaining dollop of gravy. We turned our heads. It was the bell. The bell was ringing out in the fields. The father grunted, then put the last piece of his food back on his plate before rising. He opened the front door. We braced ourselves for the wind, but none came. He spat on and held up a finger to the night air, then shook his head. He moved back into our lamplight and sat. Arthur asked, Is it gonna storm? Mary asked, Is there gonna be a tornado? My mother shook her head, smiled at us, and told us not to worry. No wind meant no storm, but that bell kept ringing. My father dipped his last piece of food in the gravy and prepared to eat it despite the constantly ringing bell, but then sighed and put it back down. He motioned to Clarence. Clarence was the oldest, so he understood. He was nearly a man himself, and tying the bell would be no problem. He grabbed a candle, protected the flame with his hand, and headed out the open front door. My brothers and sisters and I piled up to the window, opening it. We found nothing but absolutely still, chilly air. We watched his little spot of light move out, around the house, and into the fields in the direction of the bell. The clanging metallic sound stopped. Finally. And the candle's little flame hovered next to it for a solid minute. Why is he taking so long to tie it? Ruth asked. Eleanor suggested. Maybe he's having trouble making a knot. Knots are tough. We watched for another minute or two before. And I know how this sounds. The little flame in the distance began to rise, slowly, smoothly, straight up. We followed it with our eyes, exclaiming the entire time as it moved out of sight beyond the roof overhang. The bell began ringing again. His knot must have come loose, Arthur said. Our parents came to look at our insistence, but there was nothing to see by then. Father motioned to Arthur. Happy to help out, Arthur grabbed a full lamp rather than a candle. He hurried out the front door around the house, and into the fields while we watched from the window. The lamp was easier to see, and we were absolutely certain he reached the crook. As the lamplight hovered there, the bell stopped ringing. At that point, we had no reason to think anything was amiss. Maybe the wind had just blown a wisp of burning candles string up to the sky and Clarence got lost in the dark. He would see the lamplight, find Arthur, and they would both come back. The rising little flame we'd seen had just been a fluke. Only problem was, staring out into the autumn night, we still felt no wind at all. We stared at that unmoving light for a strangely long period of time. What was he doing out there? Was he calling for his brother? Why couldn't we hear him, if so? Our parents looked away for a moment, and in that instant, the lamp went out. We children bleated, but by the time they glanced back, there was nothing to see. There was only darkness. The bell began ringing again. My father began grumbling, but there were no more sons to send outside. 
He narrowed his eyes with thought, then handed Ruth, the oldest girl among us, our main lamp. Our mother laughed. Ruth, be a dear and go find your silly brothers. Ruth was a little hesitant, but she accepted the lamp. Leaving us in darkness without it, she headed out around the house and into the fields. This lamp was brighter, and we could actually see her carrying hand in her white pajamas in a small lit halo. On the way there, she regularly called out, Clarence? Arthur? You two lost? About halfway to where the other two lights had stopped, her calls went instantly silent mid-sentence. Clarence? Art? It wasn't that she'd given up yelling. The sound reaching us had simply stopped completely. We could still see her carrying the lamp, still see her hand in pajamas, still see her turning this way and that. She even raised the house lamp near her face, and we saw her shouting into the darkness. We just didn't hear anything. Nothing except that constantly clanging bell, growing faster in pace and louder in urgency. Mary, Eleanor, and I looked up at our parents with fearful gazes. My father shook his head, speaking for the first time that night. So there's wind out there after all. The air is like a river inside an ocean. It's moving fast out there, carrying her voice away, but we can't feel it here. My mother seemed worried, but she nodded and accepted that. We saw her accepting it, so we gulped and believed it too. We all glued our eyes to that open window. Ruth had reached the bell, and in that stronger light, it entered our view unmoving at the exact same time we heard it stop ringing. Ruth looked this way and that, clearly concerned. She seemed to silently yell a time or two before moving closer to the motionless bell. A half-tied rope hung from the crook, an indication that someone had attempted to tie it, but we couldn't see Clarence or Arthur anywhere near her. She put the lamp down on the ground to free her hands for tying the rope the rest of the way, but that mostly hid the light among the low-lying, recently harvested stalks. We waited, breaths held. The air held in my lungs started to burn. At long last, we were forced to breathe again. Ruth's light continued to sit there, barely visible between broken plants. "'What's taking so long?' Mary asked. Eleanor said, "'I hope she's all right.' Father told us, "'She's fine. Damn kids are just playing a game with us.' Our mother nodded in agreement. "'Eleanor, go fetch your sister, will you?' Eleanor shook her head. "'No way! It's scary out there! It's just a game. You're not playing a game with us, too, are you?' "'No,' Eleanor gulped. "'Then go get your sisters and brothers. Tell them to come back in.' It was pitch black out there, and almost the same inside with us, save for one lone candle." trembling, Eleanor took our last candle and crept out into the night, scooting along the side of the house to stay as close to us as possible. Shakily, she called, Ruth? Arthur? Clarence? This isn't funny anymore. Now it was we who sat in the dark. As Eleanor began to move further away with the last of our light, we tensed. Father eyed the open door and Mother softly moved to close and latch it. I wondered what they meant by that move, because how were the others supposed to get back in? But I suppose they'd unlatch it if anyone came back and knocked. Mother moved away from us in search of more candles. Through it all, the bell kept ringing out in the dark. Increasingly scared, I held Mary's hand tightly and yelled out the window, Be careful, Allie! She must have happened to cross that invisible silent threshold at that moment, because she turned around in surprise and stepped closer. I heard your voice go quiet, but there's no wind. Papa's wrong. She stepped away again. See, when I passed this point, my... 
She held up the candle to show us that her mouth was still moving, but we heard nothing. Come to think of it, her hair wasn't moving, and we hadn't seen Ruth's pajamas blowing in any wind. I asked Father, what's doing that? What's making it quiet out there? It's just a game, Father insisted. They're all lying. She's just pretending to make noise so it looks like she's being silenced. Eleanor reached the bell. Father's grip on my shoulder squeezed to nearly painful. She reached down for the lamp Ruth had left, lifting it with one hand and holding the candle with the other. She approached the clanging bell. See? Mary whispered to Father. The candle's not going out, even though she's not protecting the flame. There's no wind out there. But the bell is ringing, he said gruffly, so there is wind. Eleanor kept looking left and right, as if she had heard something. Slowly she reached the bell, which was hanging unmoving from the crook, but we could still hear it ringing. Next to me, Mary began to cry. It's a game, Father said angrily. It's just a game they're playing. Eleanor threw the lamp at something in the darkness. We saw the lamp crash, shatter, and go dark, but heard nothing. She raced towards us, candle in hand, but the flame went out because of her haste. We waited to hear her approaching or screaming, but nothing followed. The bell continued to clang. We waited in terrified silence. Mother returned with a candle for each of us, and we sat vigil at the window. Nothing and no one moved. For hours, the bell clanged without wind, and the night remained pitch black. The bell clanged and clanged and clanged, driving deeper into our ears with each passing minute. Near midnight, we broke. Father was beyond agitated. Mary, go find your brothers and sisters. No, she cried. I'm not going out there. Mother glared at her. You have to. This game has to stop. Urged on by both of them, Mary burst into tears and climbed out the window. Holding her small candle, she inched out into the fields. Her sobs went quiet as she passed that same point out in the darkness. Her flame reached the bell, and the ringing stopped. Her flame snuffed out. We held our breaths. The bell began ringing again. Father clenched his fists. Go! I turned and I saw he was looking at me. I suddenly realized I was the only child left in the house and I felt horribly alone. Everything in me shrieked against the thought of going out into that cursed night. No, my mother wavered in place. No longer adamantly in line with my father, she began to cry too. What are you doing? He demanded. It's just a game. There's nothing to be scared of. She screamed and demanded, Why do you keep saying that? Why have I been helping you do this? He grabbed her and shouted in her face, Because we haven't been sending our children to their deaths. That's not what's happening. She pushed his hands away and ran for the window. Pushing past me, she tumbled out and ran, screaming toward the still-clinging bell. Not out of fear for father, but out of terror for her children. Arthur! Clarence! Ruth! Eleanor! Mary! For God's sake, where are you? He growled and leapt out after, yelling, We didn't kill them! Everything is fine! They both continued shouting until they passed the point in the dark, and all went silent, except for the bell. Twice more, it stopped ringing, and twice more, it began again. 
In panic and terror beyond reason, I closed and latched the window and pushed all of the furniture against every entry to the house. I curled up in a cupboard, holding the last candle up to my face as it slowly melted its way down toward my fingers. I was alone. Somehow, I was alone. We'd all seen the danger and stared right at it as it happened. But one by one, they'd all gone out there anyway. I'd been surrounded by a full band of siblings my entire life, and now I was completely and utterly alone in a house in the middle of nowhere. By the length of my candle, it was three in the morning when the knock came at the door. I trembled but did not make a sound. The knock sounded again forty heartbeats later. It was louder this time. I shook, holding my candle tight. The third knock was more like a tremendous crash or kick, and I heard the door explode inward. Sixty heartbeats of silence passed. And then the floorboards creaked. Something in me told me to put out my candle for fear of it being seen through the cracks in the cupboard. But I didn't dare. Not darkness. I couldn't handle the darkness. I would scream if I did, so I kept it lit. Slow, quiet steps moved through the house. Whoever it was seemed to be pausing and listening at times. At others, they would rush forward to a random spot in a sudden frenzy and then stop abruptly. Four hundred heartbeats after that. The bell began ringing again. But this time, it rang from inside the house. It rang from the kitchen. It rang from near the bed. It rang outside my cupboard. Ten feet away. Five feet away. Right up against the cupboard door. And then it opened. I sat expectantly, mouth open and eyes wide as I waited for my great-grandmother to continue. After a bit, I realized that was it. But what'd you see? She shook her head. That's not the point. I'm here, so obviously I survived, and a young man like you doesn't need to know what horrors walk this world outside the paved cities of man. Gulping, I asked. You're not just pulling my leg. This really happened? Yes. Her gaze went distant by the television link. But here's what I want to tell you, and what you should tell your brother. The thing that opened that cupboard door and stared at me from the dark. The thing that hoped to wait out my candle before the coming of dawn. Had a bell tied to one of its teeth with a blood-soaked rag. So that it would clang when its mouth was open for hunting. Somehow, someway, some heroic poor soul managed to tie a warning bell to that thing before they died. We heard that warning bell all night long, and yet my entire family walked out there one by one. We didn't listen because we didn't want to listen. My father knew what he was doing halfway through, but he didn't want to accept what he'd already done. So he did even worse to continue living the lie. I narrowed my eyes. What are you saying? She grabbed my hand briefly. Fear will tell you to put your candle out but your head will tell you to keep it lit. Don't give in to fear. You keep it lit. You'll get through this. Turning my head, I became aware of a sound in the distance. Is that... Is that the bell? I was so caught up I didn't notice. 
How long has it been ringing? She just clenched her fist and turned back to the television. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Goosebumps everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, fuck that. Nope. nope. Next is the insomnia conspiracy. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If Something Wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! Yesterday, I had a rare return of energy and positivity. Today, I woke up miserable with all the signs of an oncoming cold. Something about the timing of it had me more than agitated than usual. In fact, I was downright angry. My schedule for the last week had been crazy, but somehow I'd felt more and more alive by the end of it. Yesterday, I wrote down a massive to-do list. I had the energy and the attitude to get my life in order, to hit the gym, to eat healthy, and to be more ambitious at work. The sudden surge in motivation had been a long time coming, but it was gone in an instant when I woke up with a sore throat. I sat at the kitchen table glaring out the window as I waited for my coffee to brew. God damn it! I was beginning to feel like this happened every time. Whenever I finally woke up and beat my bad habits, something would happen to kick me right back in. This time, it was a sudden oncoming cold. Last time, it had been a sudden inability to sleep. Before that, it had been a sudden case of food poisoning. Stewing over it made me so angry that I began to entertain stranger and stranger ideas. What if life was out to get me? What if reality itself was tuned to keep me down? If that were true, then what had I done during the last week to get the motivation surge from yesterday? As I began going over it in my head, I realized that the busy week had made it impossible for me to do many of the things I normally did. For two or three of the days I'd hardly eaten, and I'd had way less caffeine overall. Feeling weird, I got up and turned off my coffee maker. Maybe I'd try going without the black stuff for a bit. I went about my morning routine after that. When I returned to the kitchen, the coffee maker was back on. My roommate was there, bleary-eyed and zombie-like, standing over the machine. He mumbled, Want some? I should have seen the signs then. At the time, I thought nothing of it. Maybe it had been a silly idea to try and kick my caffeine habit on a Monday with no warning. I took a traveler's mug with me in the car on the way to work, but a feeling I could not quite articulate hit me every time I tried to take a sip on the commute. I would lift the mug, smell the coffee within, feel a surge of wakefulness and need, and then put the mug back down without drinking any. It was too much. I needed it, and I didn't want to need it. I just got angrier at myself for how desperate I was to drink it. 
Sitting at my desk that morning, I began to feel the weight of my decision behind my eyes and on my brain. The world felt heavier. My awareness was a boulder tipped on the edge of the cliff of sleep, and I was exhausting myself just keeping it from falling over. A coworker came by. Hey bud, got a case of the Mondays? Here, you need this more than I do. He put a mug of coffee on my table. I stared at him until he went away. Then I went to the office kitchen and dumped the coffee out. I wasn't trying to be rude, I just didn't want to have to sit there smelling it and having it wear down my resistance minute by minute. In the kitchen was a huge tray of bagels, donuts, and random leftover cake from an event that weekend. I approached with a grin until my fingers were just above that last blueberry bagel. It was the last one, so for some reason, it was more valuable. I was tired, so for some reason I needed this. A free, unexpected blueberry bagel would make up for the pain of caffeine deprivation, but why do I need this? Sullen resentment joined the burning star of anger under my ribs. Was I really going to just switch from caffeine to sugar for my indulgence this Monday morning? For that matter, why did I hate so much that it was Monday morning? It almost felt like an excuse to indulge. I sat staring at my computer blankly. I wanted to browse Reddit instead of work, but before I did, it occurred to me that it was just another indulgence. Begrudgingly, I actually started doing my job for the day. But I did jump up at reaching lunchtime. It was time to eat. That would help me feel better. I drove to the nearest drive-thru and studied the menu for nearly two minutes before realizing that everything on it would just make me more tired. It was all heavy. Hamburgers, fries, chicken sandwich. I ate this every day of the week and I just felt gross and sick the rest of my work day. I tried another chain, but the offerings were the same. This one had a salad option, but it would come with a ton of dressing and processed stuff. I didn't know if I could resist using the dressing. I even wasted precious lunchtime going to the grocery store, but I wandered around its aisles in confused horror as I realized there was literally nothing available that was easily edible but would also not make me tired. As a last resort, I realized I could use the office kitchen to cook something. Nobody had ever done this as far as I knew because it was awkwardly public and will fill the area with food smells, but I had no other choice. I started looking for extremely basic ingredients. The first box I picked up was expired. So was the second. I didn't want to bother any of the employees, so I just took the freshest expired box and went up to the front to check out. I chose the self-checkout aisle and scanned my choice. The computer didn't react. Not working? An employee asked. She took the box from me and scanned it a few times. Huh. I guess it's not reading it. So how do I buy it? I asked her. Guess you can't, sorry. Frustrated and out of time, I left the box with her and began to walk out. As I passed her, by way of awkward apology, she said, Mondays, right? Maybe some coffee would help. That moment crystallized something in me. I stopped, turned, and looked at her. She was serious and sincere. Everyone was. I'd been serious and sincere when I'd suggested coffee to people in the past. I returned to the office and sat at my computer. No longer working, I waited. Whoa, you look sick, my boss said when she came by. Are you feeling alright? I nodded. Maybe get some coffee, she said. You know, a little pick-me-up. There it was. I nodded again. About an hour later, my coworker came by. Hey, I heard you were feeling sick today. We got some extra chipotle by accident on the lunch order. He left a large foil-wrapped burrito on my desk. Yeah, because you definitely give people Chipotle when they don't look like they're feeling well. Sorry. There's everything else, <laughs> <so> why not? <laughs> That'll clear out your system. Yeah, with the form of diarrhea. Ugh. Sorry. Anyway. I nodded and smiled. When he moved on, I threw it in the trash. When the clock neared five, 
I snuck out the back way. Just before I left the building, I peered around a corner and saw my boss and a co-worker at my cubicle, surprised that I wasn't there. Traffic was horrible, and the commute was long, but every time I went to turn on the radio, I stopped myself. That was just another way of tuning out. When I got home, I went straight to my room and locked the door. Sleep that night was easy, deep, and incredible. I couldn't believe it. I struggled with sleep every night of my life, but one day resisting the weird pressure to tune out and I slept like a baby? When I opened my door, my roommate was standing there with a coffee mug. Hey bro, this is for you. I tried to maintain a mask of politeness. Oh, what's this for? Just didn't see you last night, thought you might need it. I took the mug graciously, thanked him, and left it on my nightstand. The world felt different. I felt different. Showering felt oddly real, and I could feel individual water droplets in the stream rather than just numb pressure. My body felt lighter, and for once, the weight behind my eyes was gone. The relief of not having that heaviness there was disconcerting. Was this how humans were normally supposed to feel? Had cavemen walked around feeling decently fine every single day? Side comment, probably not. <laughs> I say they probably felt bruised most days. <laughs> On the commute, I didn't listen to music. I sat with only my awareness and my thoughts. Time passed ever so slowly as a result, but I didn't dare fall back into the flow. At stoplights, I looked left and right. Other drivers stared straight ahead, unaware that I was watching them. Some bobbed their heads lightly to unseen music, but none were awake like me. At one light, I watched them all stare straight ahead for nearly three minutes without so much as blinking. That couldn't be right, could it? I must have just missed them blinking. Someone left an elaborate cake in the office kitchen. Twenty blueberry bagels had been stacked nearby. It all looked mighty delicious, and that was exactly why I didn't take any. My boss came by an hour later. Hey, Starbucks has a barista here. We're about to have a free coffee tasting. Oh, I'm coffeed out, I told her. Are you? She tilted her head. You look really tired. Are you still sick from yesterday? I frowned. No, I feel great. It's free, though, and you really should have some coffee. Really, I'm alright. Come on, it'll be fun. I was beginning to feel a little weird about this. No, thank you. Really, I'm fine. Everyone else is going. I said the word a little more sharply than I'd intended. No. Huh. Rude. She rolled her eyes and moved on. What the hell had that been about? I looked after her, confused and hurt. While the other employees all gathered for free coffee and lemon pound cake, I stayed in my cubicle. Oddly, I wasn't as hungry as I'd expected. One day without food had not been lethal. I did not require it. In fact, sitting there feeling light and spry, I realized that eating McDonald's or Wendy's or Chipotle made me tired, and being tired made me feel weak, which made me make poor decisions, like eating heavy food. Eating heavy food led me to eating heavy food again, keeping me tired every single day. Being tired every single day made me drink caffeine every single day. What the hell had I been doing all my life? Had I not been outside the cycle of terrible food and caffeine dependence for even a single adult day? A man stopped at my cubicle and regarded me for a moment. I almost didn't recognize him. It was the regional vice president, but he appeared to have gained noticeable weight since I last saw him. His chubby jowls bounced distractingly as he said, Company meeting in the kitchen. I nodded and got up to follow him. The coffee tasting was still going on when I entered, and all 40 of our employees were packed too deep in a ring around the table in the center where the cake was being handed out. It must have been my imagination, but my coworkers seemed darker somehow. 
horrible purple bags were visible under their eyes, and they moved about slumped and haggard. Richard's hair was thinner, and Marie's face was lined with age. Dean's waistline was two inches bigger than I remembered, and the haircut I'd liked on my boss the week before now looked poorly done. It felt like I was looking at a high-definition television, for all that it exposed flaws and blemishes, and I suddenly remembered feeling the individual drops of the shower. Someone passed me a plate with a large piece of cake on it and a plastic fork. The too-deep ring of people started devouring their shares with horrible slurping and smacking noises. I stared around in masked horror. Were we all really so slovenly? Had I just gotten used to it? As I gazed around the room, they slowed and began looking up at me. Over the course of ten seconds, the room fell silent and all those purple-ringed bloodshot eyes turned towards me. Richard asked, Why aren't you eating? Oh, I'm full, I told him. It was the best I could come up with while on the spot. Marie frowned. You didn't eat anything yesterday, either. You're making everyone feel awkward. You're making everyone feel fat, Dean added with anger as he touched his waistline with his free hand and held his cake close with the other. I took an unconscious step back. As a group, they moved forward one step. The regional vice president ordered, Eat some cake. I held my plate a little further away. I don't want to. My boss glared. Eat some goddamn cake! Forty pairs of eyes watched me with vicious anger, as if I'd personally insulted each and every one of them. They were waiting for my reply. I had the distinct feeling that if I said no, they might attack me. But my newly gained freedom was too precious to give up just like that. I threw my cake on the floor and ran for my life. <laughs> this got very dramatic very quickly. <laughs> they began screaming like rabid animals and surged after me, knocking down cubicle walls and pouring forth like a river. I screamed too, but in abject terror. What the hell had I done to infuriate everyone around me so much? I darted for the back door of the building and burst out into the parking lot. Two maintenance men were standing a few feet away smoking. They turned and looked at me in surprise, and I came to a shocked halt. Their eyes were dried gray husks, and tar dripped from their noses and mouths. Their skin was thin, so thin, god, so paper thin that I could see their veins and arteries pulsing in their necks. Tumors had grown like bubbles from behind their ears. One said, you alright man? The other held a hand forward. You look like you could use a cigarette. I'm losing my mind! I screamed at them and at myself. I ran for my car and pulled out of the lot as my coworkers stormed out the back door in search of me. They were all larger now, and they trampled right over the frail maintenance men, splattering their blood and organs in every direction. <laughs> Why did you make Christ. me read the story? I'm never working in an office ever. Fuck that. This just sounds like a trippy fucking dream. See, this is what happens when you don't eat. You Have some coffee, Tori. <laughs> I will, thanks. You know what? Here's me sipping my fucking coffee. <laughs> <coughs> and apparently choking on it. What What are you having me read? <laughs> Just keep going. I looked down from my rearview mirror aghast, but I was not safe on the road. Other cars swerved this way and that at random. Within, I could see blind men and women with stumps for hands trying to drive without fingers. No, not stumps. Their cell phones had sunk into their skin and festered. Not blind, their heads were simply held down at an angle by veins that had grown out of their infested hands. I screamed at them to get away from me, but they couldn't hear me. I sped on, trying to get away from them, but they were everywhere. A cop car turned on its lights and turned onto the road behind me. That finally broke through my terror, and I pulled over to the side of the road. The police would help. 
Yes, I could tell them what was happening, and I could get help. He looked normal as he walked up to my car. Yes, my delusion was passing! License and registration, please. I got out my wallet, but he reached in through my open window and took it out of my hands. He began rifling through. He took my cash and threw the wallet back in past me. I tried to protest. Hey, what? He shouted, Stop resisting! <laughs> you knew I wouldn't be able to get through this story without uh, fucking dying. You're welcome. The next thing I saw was a nightstick arcing towards my face. Darkness found me. Darkness and pain. I awoke in the hospital. That weird feeling of high definition sight and texture was gone. I sat for a time just recovering my senses and feeling out the pain in my head. Apparently I was not too horribly wounded and I hadn't lost any teeth. What had I done? I must have had an episode, a fit. My coworkers probably thought I was nuts. I was bored and there was a television in the upper corner of the room, but I resisted turning it on to pass the time. What seemed like an eternity later, only five minutes or so in reality, a doctor came in. I was relieved to see that he looked normal. His hair was nicely kept, he was fit, and he bore an expression of empathy. Hey there, how are you doing? My mouth was dry, but I coughed a little bit and then said, what happened? Seems like you tried to go cold turkey off caffeine and sugar, he told me compassionately. And you didn't eat for a few days at the same time. Bad recipe. Apparently, you really flipped out there for a minute. Oh god. It was true. I had some sort of nervous breakdown. I bet I'm fired. I must have freaked everyone out. Your coworkers? he asked. They're actually all here, I believe. Out in the waiting room. They're all very worried about you. I couldn't believe it. Really? Yeah, you didn't hurt anybody, if that's what you're worried about. You just panicked and ran for your life all of a sudden. That was a relief. I looked at the tubes running down my arm. Saline solution and electrolytes, he explained, seeing my glance. Just a neurochemical imbalance from too much dietary stress all at once. I nodded. Man, I saw the craziest things. His compassionate expression fell to neutral concern. What? What is it? He shook his head. We, uh, haven't given you any caffeine yet, but you should probably get some soon. And you probably shouldn't mention anything you, uh, saw. My relief turned towards worry. Why? He glanced down at the floor, then pressed his lips together unhappily, turned and left the room. A nurse came in a few minutes later and helped me up. I was shaky, so she gave me a wheelchair and rolled me out towards the waiting room. As I approached, I saw all of my coworkers standing there with concern. They really all had come out to see me. But as I got closer, I wondered why. Surely, they hadn't stopped the entire company for the entire day just to sit and wait for my recovery at the hospital? Once I got close enough, I began to understand. Dean was there, and his waistline was a foot wider than in my delusion. Marie was a decrepit old woman with rotting teeth. Richard was almost completely bald, with a few scraggly stray hairs angled randomly from the corners of his scalp. Here we all were, and I was not hallucinating. Each and every one of us was a horrifying, unhealthy mess, and my god, what did that mean for me? What did I look like? I began to look down at my hands, but creeping horror shook me forcefully as I began to take the rotting bits of flesh on my arms. We brought you a coffee and a blueberry bagel, my boss said, leaning forward to hand them to me. Her teeth were uneven, and she had a double chin I'd never noticed before. My coworkers waited with bated breath. Their expressions cried, please, 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 though they said nothing out loud. I took the coffee in one hand and the bagel in the other before looking up at the nurse behind my wheelchair. 
haunted in a permanent and traumatized sort of way. She nodded absently down at me. With relief, I wolfed down the bagel in ten bites and guzzled half the coffee. I closed my eyes and took a deep breath. When I opened them, everything was back to normal. Dean looked great. Marie was beautiful. Richard had a full head of hair. And I was one of the gang all over again. I smiled. I'm glad you're all here. I can't believe it. They rushed forward with relief and excitement to hug me and wish me well, and tell me how worried they'd been about me. A slick, cool man emerged from the crowd. It was the regional vice president. Looking good, just like I remembered. Hey, we're all a family in this business. How about a night out at karaoke? On the company! Everyone cheered and ribbed each other, and they swept me up to my feet again. It was such a relief to leave my delusion and terror behind. Reality is a tenuous thing, I knew then. It had to be carefully defended and cultivated. Even something simple like a dietary imbalance can cause you to become paranoid and see horrible things. I turned back to the nurse to give thanks and say goodbye. She looked despondent, like she could use a pick-me-up. Hey, want the rest of my coffee? She turned away without reply. Huh. Rude. Next up, targeted. I was on my phone idly browsing Reddit and talking on speakerphone with Shannon when it happened. I saw her face on a sidebar ad. It went by too fast. I pressed a link and went to another page. Hitting back did not return me to the original ad. That was weird. What was? Shannon asked. Are you looking at the internet instead of paying attention to me again? No, not at all. I lied. Well, only half lied. The front page was filled with the same reposited nonsense and sensational titles it always held. Browsing it had become a matter of habit without any real attention paid. I'm just... I froze halfway through the sentence as I saw her face again. This time I was ready, and I tapped the ad with my finger. The first thing that loaded up was a still shot of Shannon at a gas station refueling her car. The only light came from the harsh gas station overheads. Shannon... Did you stop for gas on the way home? I mean, yeah, she responded. I'm still 20 minutes out, though. I quickly did the mental math. She lived in Newark, about 45 minutes east of Columbus. That put her squarely in the forested middle of nowhere. Someone has a picture of you up on their website. She laughed. <laughs> I bet it's an ex-boyfriend. After a pause, she asked, Wait, are you serious? I scrolled up and down trying to figure out what the hell I was looking at. It's like they just took the picture. Are you in a dark red hoodie and jeans right now? Her reply came after a strained noise of confusion. Well, yeah, but it's the same one that I always wear. Who would have taken that? And when? What the hell site is that? I slid my finger down to pull the website address into view on my phone. Live, I murmured. Like living, or was it live, like live television? I went with the first, since living and dying were opposites, and thus the name sounded vaguely businesslike. LiveDeath.com? Live Death? What even is that? Is it like one of those extortion sites that demand cash to take photos down? I scrolled the other way and found a timer for a streaming video, about to start in 18 seconds. I'm not sure. I don't like this. They're about to stream something. I watched as the circling indicator appeared and then black filled the screen. The view moved around wildly for a moment as someone got ready, and then I could see a lit dashboard from a large vehicle, possibly an SUV. The camera panned up to focus on a man in a black ski mask. 
but he was not the one holding the camera. All right, folks, he said with excitement as he drove, his voice ever so slightly distorted. This is our first run for our new site. We're going to show those assholes who's boss. Really give them something to fear. While using his other hand to guide the steering wheel, he held up a phone with a gas station picture of Shannon on it. This is our first target. We're about two minutes behind her, but catching up fast. It's a straightaway, and there are no turnoffs for the next six miles, so we won't lose her. The unseen cameraman turned the view to show the night-clad road rolling under their headlights ahead of the black-painted hood. I heard a click. The headlights went off. That distorted voice said, Night mode now, baby. She'll never see us coming. My blood ran cold. Shannon. What is it? Did you figure out what's going on? Shannon. I said again, unable to process what I was seeing. There are men in ski masks in a black SUV with its lights off coming up behind you on the road. What? She sounded half-humored and half-terrified. What are you talking about? That distorted voice said, Payback is gonna be sweet. They think they're better than us, but we'll show them. Shannon, I shouted at my phone. Get off the road. They tagged you at the gas station and they're coming after you. Are you serious? Yes, I'm watching their live stream right now. How is that even possible? I don't know, but it's happening. I screamed even louder. Get off the rope! She was starting to believe me, and I could hear panic in her voice. There's nowhere to turn. Anywhere. Just go anywhere. I heard her gasp. The sounds of branches and bushes smacking against her car in rapid succession emanated from my phone. A loud crunch and a repetitive electronic beeping followed as she breathed. Oh god. Oh god. Still watching the stream, I asked her, Are you alright? I'm fine, she said with a dazed tone that belied her words. I heard her push open her door and climb out into scraping bushes. I'm fine. On the stream, I saw a pair of headlights off to the side of the road swing into view. Oh my god, turn off your headlights! I can't, she murmured. I can't get back in. The SUV's hood began turning towards those headlights, and I could vaguely make out a car in the distance. She'd smash what looked like a quarter mile deep into the undergrowth. They never would have found her if she had turned off her lights. That distorted voice said, There she is! I screamed at the phone for her to run, and I heard her take off panting and pushing through branches. What the hell was going on? I fumbled with my phone. I'm gonna call the police. No! She cried. Don't hang up! Don't you dare hang up! I could hear her tumble and slide down a dirt hill. Where are they? They're running through the woods, I told her, panicking myself. I screamed for one of my roommates, then I saw another detail. Something long, dark, and metallic was swinging in and out of view at the bottom of the stream. Shannon, they've got guns. She broke into full crying as she ran. I screamed for my roommates again. Finally, one tapped on the door and peeked inside. I screamed at the top of my lungs. Call the goddamn police! Men with guns are chasing Shannon through the woods! My roommate's eyes widened, but he ran off to find his phone. My heart still racing. This couldn't be happening. Shannon? She didn't respond. I could still hear her running, scraping around and falling. Finally, I heard her seem to free fall down a rocky slope. There was a scream, a crunch, and then nothing. Shannon? After ten seconds of absolute silence, the longest ten seconds of my life, I heard her rasp, then whisper, I'm alive. I think I broke my ribs. I didn't have good news for her. I could hardly speak myself. They're at the top of a big slope. They're coming for you. I can't move, she whispered. 
The distorted voice from the stream said, Think we got her now? Is that her down there? Oh boy, this is gonna be fun. She asked, Was that them? The phone shook in my hand. Did you hear them? Only over the phone, she rasped back. I don't hear anyone nearby. They had the wrong slope. Shannon, I know it hurts, but you have to hide. Alright? Do you hear me? You have to drag yourself under something. Behind something. Anything. We're calling the cops. My roommate appeared at my door, phone against his ear, his face pale. On her way to Newark, I told him. About 20 minutes west of it. He nodded and began answering questions I couldn't hear. The only noises from my phone were of Shannon dragging herself through leaves and dirt while sobbing. There she is! The distorted voice shouted, and the cameraman took off running along the forest floor alongside him. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. My roommate was crying while talking with the police. I just stared at the stream. Please no. Please no. Please no. Oh god. There was a human form on the ground in the dark. The form was wearing a red hoodie. Shannon, they see you! They're running at you! She began to scream with the absolute utmost terror I'd ever heard from human lungs. The two masked men in the video ran right at the person on the ground, grabbed her forcefully, and began to turn her over. Suddenly, the stream froze. I looked up at my roommate in confusion and horror. He moved closer to look at the frozen video. I asked tentatively, Shannon? With a speaker right up to my ear, I listened. I could hear her pained breathing. After nearly ten seconds, she forced out, I don't see them. I lowered my phone and looked at the frozen video. Text had appeared across it. Like the video? Only $5.99 to unlock the rest. What the fuck? I swallowed a lump in my throat. My roommate asked, What the fuck is this? While Shannon kept struggling to breathe on the other end, I scrolled down to a new section of the site that had not been available before. Here at LiveDeath.com, we use information and pictures from your phone and Facebook profile to auto-generate scary videos. It's the ultimate in targeted oh marketing! Did you enjoy two men in ski masks? Choose from a wide range of selections. I was still shaking, but now for a very different reason. Below the words was a picture of the masked man holding up his phone like he had at the start of the stream. The phone screen was blank blue, and then a series of different people appeared in it. LiveDeath.com even uses the newest in audio and visual technology. While you and your friends might think your phones are off, we're still watching and listening through your camera and microphone, letting us choose which path and scenes the live stream takes. We guarantee you'll be scared out of your socks! What's happening? Shannon choked out. We could hear her pulling herself along the forest floor. Where are they? We didn't immediately answer. We couldn't. Overcome by rage and a sense of violation I never experienced before, I clicked through to the terms of service for the website. Apparently, I'd agreed to let them have access to my data, profile, camera, and microphone simply by visiting the site. In a way, it was my fault. My god. It was an ad. I'd literally tapped a sidebar ad. What did I thought would happen? Wow. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh -huh. oh, technology never gets to that point. Goes, no. Why do you think I don't trust shit? Yeah, no, I get mm -hmm. it. I get it. And last but not least, at number one, we have fuck oranges. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gonna be great. Yep.
at the bar for Connor's 22nd birthday, when the world first began to fall apart. It started with an absurdly small detail. I ordered two blue moons for us, like always, but he picked the orange slice off the rim of his glass with a frown. I looked down at the one on my glass and asked, Something wrong? His frown momentarily changed to a look of disgust. I hate oranges. That was odd, since it had been our ritual since his 21st birthday to always get that brand together when we were out at a bar, because fruit's good for you, therefore this beer is healthy. But it was his birthday, and he could do what he wanted, so I didn't ask about it. Rebecca, however, had already had a few. She cut past the group conversation to proclaim, But isn't the orange the healthiest part? Connor shook his head. No way, oranges are gross. Across the table, Dan said, Oranges are great, man. They're nature's candy. Rebecca's older sister, Shannon, was with us that night. She countered, No beets are nature's candy. When we stared at her blankly, she asked, Doug? You know, the Nickelodeon show, Doug, but the dog, Porkchop, best friend, Skeeter. Everyone in that world loved beets. When we only vaguely recalled the show she was talking about, she threw her hands out in defeat. Near us, an older regular was watching a television above the bar. He sneered. Man, I'll tell you what's wrong with this country. It's them. He pointed at the screen. I hate them. Around him, fellow regulars cheered, and he grinned with pride. He held his hands up high and said, Round of shots for the whole bar. On me. And that was all I really remembered of the first night things began to unravel. After that, my memories got blurry, and I woke up under a villainous beam of sunlight with overwhelming nausea and a killer headache. My first mighty act of willpower was to close the blinds and hide us from the monstrous sun. Dan was on the floor of my room under the computer table, and Rebecca was in the hallway swaddled in every single blanket the house had to offer. I said, Dad, this sounds scary. Tell <laughs> my friend. Safe room! Tell me where all your blankets are! <laughs> I need them all! With relief, I saw that Connor was propped up on his bed by an array of pillows that kept him on his side. A trash can below him was filled halfway up with vomit, and Shannon sat in the corner on her phone. Upon seeing me, she said, Oh, does your head hurt? Good. He's all yours now. I'm going home and going to sleep. I was left to take care of the birthday boy, which admittedly was much easier now that he was half awake. The one thing I did ask him during his stupor was, Do you really hate oranges? Always have, man, he groaned and I was left feeling as if our roommate ritual for the entire last year had been some weird sort of lie he'd grown tired of carrying on. I stood on that feeling for the rest of the day. What if he didn't really consider me a friend? What if he was just humoring me because we were roommates? It felt as if my entire position in the group was in jeopardy, as if the way I thought of myself was under threat. It was a gnawing, lonely, and terrible feeling that kept me up all Sunday night. On Monday, I downed coffee and sat morosely at my computer. This was my first job after graduation, and I was finding it unfulfilling. Did we even do any real work? While my coworkers spent most of the day huddled around a meeting room television watching the news, I could only think about the orange issue. By the end of the workday, I decided to cave. I was the first one at the bar that evening, and Dan sat next to me about 20 minutes later. He looked at my stout and said, No blue moon today? Uh, I, uh, hate oranges. I lied with a grimace. To my surprise, he said, Me too. That was weird. Didn't you say they're nature's candy? Not even close. He looked to be rather offended. Oranges are the highest carrier of disease among all fruits and vegetables. 
Mortified, I asked. Seriously? He folded his arms. Yep, absolutely disgusting fruit. That was a bold enough claim that I put down my stout and picked up my phone. After a few searches, I began to grow very confused. Citrus greening, citrus canker, citrus black spot, gross. Sweet orange scab? How have I never heard of these diseases before? The pictures were horrifying. Oh, but wait, these only affect oranges and are not dangerous to humans. Dan just shrugged. Science says a lot of things are safe, and then suddenly they find out they're not. I'm not eating anything that looks like that. I didn't agree with him, but the images had still unsettled me. Maybe there was a reason to avoid oranges after all. The rest of the gang showed up soon after, but the disturbing images never truly left my awareness. Later that night, as we all spilled out of an Uber in front of my place, we were laughing and joking again as normal, and I was starting to feel a little better. I'd overblown the whole issue, really. There was nothing to worry about. These people didn't secretly hate me, and I did belong. Across the street, one guy began yelling angrily at another. The Uber pulled away, removing the barrier between our group and the guys. We saw them push at each other, scream back and forth, and then began trading punches. This was a nice college-age neighborhood where nothing of the sort had ever happened before. What were they thinking? We stared until they noticed us. Abruptly, they stalked off and returned to their separate houses, next to each other. They were neighbors. How ridiculous, Connor said with a laugh before leading us inside. We'll have to make sure not to invite them over next time we have a party. He didn't seem to be in any sort of deceptive or bad mood, so once we were all sitting around the kitchen table drinking water, I took the opportunity to ask him about what had been bothering me. Yeah, I do hate oranges, he told me. You'll never catch me eating the damn things. They're like the biggest carrier of disease among all the fruits and vegetables. Never? I joked. What about the last year of us getting blue moons? He tilted his head at that. I never get that beer. It comes with an orange slice. And I hate oranges. That was when it finally occurred to me that something was seriously wrong, either with my memory or with the world. No longer smiling, I said, we've been getting that beer every time we go out since your birthday, last year, when that hop girl that night thought your joke about it being healthy was hilarious. His expression darkened. That never happened. I don't drink Blue Moon. That's how I remember it, I insisted flatly. Then your memory's messed up, he retorted, growing strangely angry. He balled up a fist between us. I never drank that shit. I never have. You stop saying that shit now. Oranges are disgusting. Rebecca and Dan watched us in awkward silence. I figured I had one more back and forth within the bounds of politeness. I decided to make it count. Dan, you remember us getting the orange slices with our beer, don't you? Dan stiffened in his chair. Oh, don't bring me into this. I hate oranges too, always have. I wouldn't hang out with people who didn't. I stared at him. What? What the hell does that mean? Since when is this such a big deal? I turned to Rebecca. You remember, don't you? That whole exchange with your sister about oranges versus beets on Saturday night? She kept her eyes on her water and did not reply. Connor stood and approached me with menace. Look, man, you've been a good friend for a long time, but you're gonna have to cut the shit out if you want to keep hanging with us. Was he serious? How could he possibly be serious? I looked to Rebecca and Dan, but neither of them met my confused gaze. I was just joking, I finally told Connor. You know, messing with you guys. His face immediately lit up. Oh, damn. You got me good. Ah, uh, yeah. I laughed with him, secretly terrified. Rebecca and Dan finally looked up, relieved, and the mood immediately went back to happy and carefree. 
I hung out and pretended to be normal until everybody finally went to bed. Rebecca in her room downstairs, and Dan and Connor in the hallway next to my room, before I finally had a chance to investigate. For the first time in months, I closed and locked my door. The wonderful atmosphere that our house full of friends had started with was now one of fear and suspicion. I sat in the dark in front of my computer and began to scour the internet in search of answers. I'd seen enough science fiction to hazard a few guesses. Was I in the wrong reality somehow? Was my timeline changing for some reason? I didn't know enough particulars about history to see if anything was different on Wikipedia. No, this was my room. My credit card worked and my social security number was correct. If reality or time had changed in even the slightest way, those randomly generated numbers would have been different. This is my world, just changing for some reason. And because of that small and utterly inconsequential change, my home life and friends group were on the line. Was I going crazy? The only conclusion left was that I was the problem. Something was wrong with my memory or belief that had me at odds with those I cared about. Just then, as I sat in the dark, I heard my doorknob turn and fail to open since I'd locked it. Someone had just tried to come into my room. And something told me it wasn't for cuddling. It had been a subtle and stealthy attempt. On a horrified hunch, I quickly and quietly opened my window and slid out into the night. Five houses down, I saw a roof ablaze. Someone's house was on fire. What the hell was happening? But I couldn't worry about that at the particular moment. Peering in another window, I saw a silhouette of darker darkness move near a gleam of metal. Someone had just tried to come into my room with a knife. The silhouette disappeared into deeper shadow, leaving me with no identity beyond the fact that it had to have been one of my roommates. How in the ever-blazing hell had a like or dislike of oranges come to such a point? This was not normal. This was not natural. Crouched out there in the chilly night, illuminated only by the house fire five lots distant, I was forced to face the only conclusion left. Something supernatural was going on. As soon as I truly entertained that notion, the firelit darkness felt suddenly far less solitary. Were eyes upon me? Was something watching me even then? I found it hard to believe that hating oranges was the primary goal of whatever was happening. Rather, just the side effect of a slowly creeping insanity or possession of some sort? There was nothing to do about it at that particular moment. I didn't feel safe outside, but I didn't feel safe back in my room either. I barricaded the door and windows and found only the least satisfying half-awake form of sleep. In that odd mix of dreaming and waking, images of deceased fruit tortured my awareness. I didn't get a chance to catch Rebecca alone until Wednesday. She was the first to show up to the bar that evening, like Dan had been on Monday, but she seemed uncomfortable and apprehensive. After she looked over her shoulder for a third time at the entrance to the bar, I asked quietly, Are you afraid too? Her gaze spoke volumes. She bit her lip, looked at the door again, and told me, Just stop screwing around with the oranges thing, alright? What is the oranges thing? I demanded in a whisper. What is going on? Half panicked at my question, she insisted, Just tell them you hate oranges, alright? Just freaking tell them you hate oranges. Stop asking about it. Stop poking at it. I like my life. I like you guys. I like my house. Stop disrupting everything. I grabbed her hand as it lay on the table between us. I just want to understand, where did this hatred for oranges even come from? What is going on that is making our roommates act like this? She finally looked me in the eyes, and I saw bloodshot exhaustion there. Wait, I whispered. Have you been sleeping poorly, too? Bad dreams? 
Her eyes opened a little wider. She went to speak, but she saw someone come in the back door of the bar and quickly pulled her hand away from mine. Connor fell upon me rather forcefully from behind, but only to wrap his arm around my shoulder and neck. Oh, what are you two lovebirds up to? He knew we weren't a thing anymore. What was his problem? Following the cue from Rebecca's masked terror, I said, Just talking about how much we hate oranges, bro. Connor jerked his neck towards her. Is that so, Rebecca? She didn't speak. She just forced a smile and nodded weakly. Awesome, awesome, he said with genuine relief. He let go of me and sat between us. I knew you two would come around. Dan arrived soon after, complaining of a vendor selling oranges he'd seen on the way over. Grossest pile of disease you've ever seen, he shuddered. I looked to Rebecca, but she silently warned me to just go with it. And I did. For the next hour, I carefully observed Dan and Connor, trying to figure out what was going on with them. It wasn't until I went up to the bar to get Rebecca and myself more drinks that I saw something that chilled my soul. A girl took a picture of three of her friends to my left. The angle was such that my table was in the background. While waiting for the drinks, I happened to glance at her phone. My table was indeed in the background. There was Rebecca, there was Dan, there was Connor, and someone else. I only saw her phone for an instant before she turned away, but I was certain enough to surreptitiously turn around and pretend I was texting while I angled my camera up at my friends. There, among the crowded patrons of the bar, and shown only in choppy frame-by-frame rendering, was the shadow of a person bent down near Connor's ear. As I stared at my phone in paralyzed terror, that shadowy head tilted up as if it was looking at me with concern. Rather than react to give myself away, I shouted to my friends, Picture time! The silhouette turned a half-step and vanished as if a gust of wind had dissipated it in one fell swoop. My friends smiled and made faces. The flash irritated a few surrounding patrons, but I'd gotten away with it. And there was something among us. Holy Christ, a literal shadow whispering in Connor's ear, murmuring insidious words of hatred, no doubt. But why oranges? That Wednesday night at 8.42pm Eastern Standard Time, a runaway car crashed into the front of the bar, smashing all the windows and killing a woman. I know the exact time because the police forced us all to give statements before we could go. We'd been across the entire bar and had only seen the aftermath, really, but I was still pretty unhelpful. All I could think about was the shadow lurking among us. As the Uber pulled onto our street that night, I absently studied the blackened shell of the house that had caught on fire five lots down. It was still smoldering, and it looked like nobody had come to put it out. In fact, it looked like nobody lived there at all. Looking left and right, I noticed that half of the houses on our street had no cars in their driveways. We weren't so fancy as to have garages. Was the lurking shadow driving people away? Why hadn't anybody said anything? Were they even conscious of the shift in tone of our community? It had been the best time of my life until suddenly neighbors were getting in fistfights in broad daylight, my roommates had developed a random weird hatred, and houses were burning down without anybody calling the fire department. We sat in silence around the kitchen table for at least ten minutes. Shaken by the car crash that had killed someone across the bar, Rebecca finally spoke. She murmured, I hate oranges too. Dan and Connor moved to her and hugged her tight. It's alright. You're one of us. We'll always be here for you. As they held her, they glanced at me a few times, and I joined the huddle to avoid starting another fight. I wonder if the shadow was there with us, embracing us the way we were embracing Rebecca. I could even feel the issue clouding in my mind. Did I hate oranges too? I mean, everyone else did. And those pictures of diseased oranges were disgusting. Had I really liked orange slices with my beers this whole last year? 
If I had, I might have just been horribly mistaken. Misled even by beer advertisements. Those ads never said anything about the diseases oranges could catch. That was odd, wasn't it? It was like they didn't want me to know. It would hurt their sales for me to know. These thoughts plagued me that night and all the next day. At work on Thursday, while my coworkers randomly cried at their cubicles or had hushed discussions that broke up as soon as a manager neared, I sat on my computer and researched paranormal possessions and hauntings. One of the things I learned was that demonic beings, that is, entities from a religious sphere of ideas, hated signs of God and good and tried to get those they were trying to possess to destroy crosses and pour out holy water and the like. That made sense. But if the being haunting my friends, my house, and my street was not from the religious sphere, but perhaps a different space, what if oranges were a representation of the things that made it vulnerable? If this was some sort of anti-nature spirit, maybe it was pouring hatred of oranges into my community because oranges could drive it away. But that was crazy. I actually laughed out loud in my cubicle as I internalized the idea, and one of my crying coworkers looked at me like I was a monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I told her, grimacing awkwardly. I was just thinking about something else. <laughs> she glared and rotated away in her chair. Yeah, I wouldn't believe you either. <laughs> Thursday night wasn't one of our usual bar nights, so I was home when Rebecca's older sister Shannon stopped by. It was for something trivial, but on the way out, I caught her on the porch. I needed reassurance. Hey, Shannon, you remember that whole conversation about oranges versus beets last Saturday? She rolled her eyes. Yeah, what about it? I gulped. So that did happen. Yeah? And Connor and I have been joking about orange slices for the last year? Narrowing her eyes, she said, Yes? Why? I don't know, I told her truthfully. I'm just starting to doubt my own reality. I had to be sure. She scrolled through Facebook on her phone, then showed me a picture. Look, it's the two of you on his 21st birthday last year. When I was designated driver as usual... In the picture, we were both holding our beers forward, orange slices on full display. The hot girl who had sparked the entire tradition was sitting next to Connor, exactly like I remember. It's real! I looked up at her. How do you feel about oranges? She grimaced, but not out of disgust. What? Why? They taste alright, I guess. Seriously, what is your opinion on oranges, beyond just whether you personally like their taste? Neutral? She replied. I literally don't care. Why would anybody have an opinion on oranges unless they're, like, a botanist or a farmer or something? That was an incredible point, actually. I wish I knew. As she turned to leave, we began to hear a commotion at the end of the street closer to campus. We were only a few blocks away from campus, and still close enough that street vendors often passed this way. When I saw an older man pushing a cart of oranges being surrounded by a group of my peers shouting profanities, I knew exactly what was happening, and I could see Dan and Connor among them. Rebecca came out onto the porch, hearing the violent shouting, and the three of us stood staring as the mob began to push at the unfortunate cart owner. We started running toward the fray after Dan sent a wild punch, and the man fell. The mob was screaming with furious bloodlust and stomping in mass by the time we got there. But the cart owner was fine, if shaken. The mob was stomping his oranges. <sighs> what the fuck? <laughs> My cabbages! <laughs> <laughs> It was some eerie otherworldly version of a group murder. Bits of orange peel flew this way and that with the force of the stomping below. The fruit juice splattered across clothes in every direction. The gore would have been vomit-inducing had it been human. As it was, I was still mortified by what was happening. 
These people, my friends and neighbors, had become rabid animals full of irrational hate. Shannon looked at me in confused askance. I shook my head. I had no idea. But Rebecca, terrified as she was, chose to join in. Running forward, she started screaming profanities and stomping on the last of the oranges while the others began cheering. Soon they would notice that we had not joined in. Shannon, you'd better go. She took my advice immediately and began walking away toward her car. Covered in the juice blood of his victims, Connor glared at me with the eyes of a devil. Why aren't you helping? I got here too late, I lied lamely. Dan, his gaze red with anger, fixated on me as well. There's one left, he held his arms out. Everybody leave that one, he pointed down. Come on. I needed to buy time for Shannon to escape, but I also knew I had to live with and sleep near these people. <laughs> the thought of that silhouette with the knife promised no good end for anyone that defied the group. It might have been the shadow itself that had picked up the knife, but it also might not have been. It may have been the shadow itself that had picked up the knife, but it also might not have been. The cart owner looked at me in terror from down on the sidewalk as I approached his last orange. Please, no, why you do this? Why you do this? I just sell orange. Please, no. I closed my eyes and stomped. The orange splattered under my shoe and arms grasped me from every angle as my neighbors jeered and cheered. I opened my eyes and shook with shame as the cart owner got up and ran off. Dan lit a match and set the whole wooden cart on fire while the others began dancing. I had no choice but to dance with them. They wouldn't let go of me. They shook me and made me chant with them and tested me constantly to make sure I wasn't faking. To get through it, I had to temporarily convince myself they were right and that oranges were an abomination. To get through it, I had to give up part of myself, and after, I returned to my room, locked the door, and sat crying under my computer table. <laughs> we did at that point, too. I feel like I'm more fucking crazy. I know it. I, I finally snapped. This is, the, this is the final straw. I'm I must snapped. be in a coma. That is the only explanation for this. I must be in a coma. That's oh it. Oh my god. Holy shit. But then, I got angry. I got mad. I was not going to let my community be consumed by this madness. The entity whispering in our ears would pay. I was a man, goddammit, no longer a boy, and I didn't have to grin and bear it. These people weren't my parents. <laughs> Such conviction! <laughs> These people weren't my parents! Uh, <laughs> I'm a man, goddammit, not a boy! Oh... Uh, Good writing, I gotta say. This was the person who wrote this is pretty fucking this is hilarious. And terrifying at the same time. That's that's pretty great. I got in my car and drove the way the cart owner had gone. I found him five blocks down, forlorn and sitting at a city bus stop. He began to panic as he saw me, but I held up my hands peacefully and asked him a question that immediately changed his mood. I didn't make enough to save any money, but I had a credit card. I bought the entire rest of his inventory and took it all home with me. When the crates didn't fit, I just plain dumped the oranges in my truck and back seat. My car would smell like fruit for months, I was sure, but it had to be done. When Dan got home that night, I caught him behind the front door and held the knife to his throat. Sit down, I directed, tying him up to a chair in the kitchen. He shouted when Connor got home, but it was too late. I put Connor in a chair too and tied him up. Then I stuffed clean socks in their mouths so they wouldn't warn Rebecca. 
I didn't grab her. I didn't tie her up. I simply held the knife and said, sit. She nervously took third chair. I'd thrown the oranges from my car all about the kitchen. They were on the table, on the floor, and in the sink. I picked one at random, peeled the skin off, and held it in front of Connor. Eat it. Why don't you make me? He spat. I won't, I told him. But I also won't let you out of this chair until you take a bite of a goddamn orange. They're disgusting. We used to eat them all the time. That didn't happen. It did. I showed him the picture on my phone of his birthday the year before. He frowned. Is that photoshopped? It happened! I screamed in his face. Eat the orange! <laughs> he pulled his head away. They're the highest carriers of a disease among all- Yes, yes, I know! I know the sound bite, I yelled. It's wrong. Those diseases aren't dangerous to humans, and this orange isn't diseased. Eat the orange! But we hate oranges, Connor insisted, indignant. Right, guys? Dan bit down on the sock in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Connor looked to Rebecca, about to cry. She hid her face and did not respond. Connor seemed more shaken after that. After gulping down hesitation, he warily took a bite from the orange. He blinked. Oh. It's... Fine. Dan seemed surprised, and Rebecca just cried harder. I pulled the sock out of Dan's mouth and held the other side of the orange. Try it. If you hate it, that's fine. I'll let you go either way. Just try it. Seeing Connor break, Dan hesitantly tried to bite, and then pushed back in his chair. That doesn't taste like I remember. I swear it used to have a horrible antiseptic taste. No, I told him. Our heads are being messed with. We just attacked a street vendor and stomped on his oranges because we've been worked up in a frenzy of hate. Does that make any sense to you objectively? Blinking as if waking up from a dream, Dan began to look horrified. Oh my god, we did that, didn't we? What were we thinking? Connor looked up at me with the same guilt. Oh, oh man, I... He cut off as his eyes jumped to something behind me. That warning gave me just enough time to shift to the side. The knife went into my left shoulder, and I slipped on <laughs> rolling oranges and fell to the floor on top of a splatter of my own blood. Above me, I could see a knife dripping with red, and the shadow of a man behind it. Its hollow eyes were red. Dan and Connor began screaming and fighting their bonds as the shadow stepped near, but I'd tied them in too well. The shadow's red eyes moved from me to their squirming bodies, as if it was deciding which of us to kill first. What do you want? I screamed at it. What the fuck do you want? <laughs> Those red eyes swung to me and seemed to bore into my soul. A sinister chill raked across my senses as it whispered, Buy lemons! <laughs> I stared. Buy lemons? I hesitated. Why would you even care about that? I don't. It rasped, bringing the knife nearer. It is simply what my master wishes. It couldn't be so absurd as that, could it? Had some lemon farming company hired a demon worshipper and summoned an entity from beyond our world just for profit? Had they brought the incarnation of hate among us just to make money? But it was that simple. It had always been that simple. Why else would anyone do anything? It moved to stab me, but Rebecca leapt against it, and a piece of the shadow tore out where she passed. It screamed in pain, dropped the bloody knife, and grasped at the hole that she'd made. Darkness sifted out of its wounds like black sand falling from a sideways hourglass. It flared its red eyes, hissed venom, and vanished. 
It had gone. The demon that had been among us and whispering in our ears all week had gone. We all remained frozen in shock for 30 seconds before Dan snapped out of it and said loudly, Would someone please untie me already? We did, and then we patched up my arm. As a group, we didn't know what else to do, so we went and sat at our regular table at the bar. It was early on a Thursday, so few other people were there. We didn't get blue moons, but not because we hated oranges. No, our house was full of hundreds of the fruit and would smell forever. I can't believe it almost got us to go from loving oranges to hating them in less than a week, Connor murmured sadly, crouched over his drink. I shook my head. I even doubted myself there for a minute. Did things I'm not proud of. Dan looked up at us. What even hurt it? Why did a being made of hate get wounded by Rebecca just moving through it? She looked at me, and I looked at her. We both looked back down at our beers. She hadn't just moved through it. She jumped at it because of me. We both knew the answer, but that was private. Near us, an older regular was watching a television above the bar. He sneered. Man, I'll tell you what's wrong with this country. I hate... The four of us shouted in unison. He jumped in his chair and looked over at us. Don't. I told him calmly and sadly. Please, just don't. He watched us for a moment, then subtly embarrassed. He gave a slow, haunted nod and turned back to his drink. I have to say, I have run across the last story <laughs> quite a few times while trying to do research on finding the best no-sleep stories, and that one was always on the list every time. So I finally gave in and read it, and very glad I did. <laughs> It's probably one of the most confusing and hilarious, scariest stories I have found I don't, ever. I don't know what I just read, and I'm very confused. <laughs> just buy lemons. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's great. I thought the last one should like kind of break it up a little bit. I mean, it has been kind of funny and off-funny throughout, but... I had to put that one in there after reading it. I it was swear to God, you just gold. have me fucking reading the stories that are gonna break me mentally. I don't know what you're talking uh -huh. about. Uh-huh. Bullshit. <laughs> I feel like that coffee one, like coffee and sugar, that was aimed at me. That was a, a personal attack. No. I drink coffee like it's fucking water for anybody who doesn't no. know. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but kudos, kudos to both the writers. Amazing work. Really? Yeah, that was that was really good, and I like the writing style too. I do too, because it's just it's that it's putting you in that sense of fantasy versus reality, where we choose to embrace the fantasy versus looking at the horrors of reality. How yeah. easily people can be influenced, either by friends or media or yeah. anything like that, and it's terrifying. Or even the the. The one where the dude hacked into the cameras. Right. It's like looking around my room now, right now. It's like every single electronic thing with lights on it. I'm like, nope. The fuck? What's watching me? Who's watching me? Yeah, no, like, I'm no. Like, oh, God, I'm fucking the good. microwave. Ugh. Yeah. And we have several game systems. Like, that's... Or the ads you see on every single fucking oh, website. God, yeah, really. Like, I've never tapped on that shit before. Purposely, anyway. Yeah, I'm no, there's always the accidents. Gonna, yeah. It's like you're no. scrolling through and you accidentally just tap something. I'm sorry. I am a firm believer in that, like, people are fucking listening. I'm not trying to sound nuts like some of the conspiracy theorists out there, but I'm sorry. You talk about buying a new pair of pants and suddenly your Facebook feed is filled with oh, advertisements yeah, no, they definitely, of buying pants. They definitely and I'm listen like, to that what shit. the fuck? 
Yeah, no, I, this is why I don't trust that shit. I I'm don't do sure home that's... technology. I don't do any of that shit. Nope. I'm yeah, good. No. <laughs> it's funny, but it's kind of terrifying. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more spoopy tales and ghastly ghouls. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor, follow the links in the show notes, and hop on over to our Facebook group to get updates on the upcoming episodes. Laters! Laters.